Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes, coming to you on 26th of January, Thursday. I'm Katie Balls, The Spectator's political editor. Coming up on the show. Money problems are piling up for Rishi Sunak and the Tories. Can he get a grip on Tory sleeves once and for all? I'll be speaking to Isabel Hardman and John Curtis. As Russia ramps up its defence, Ukraine has made a plea to the West for more arms and tanks. But what role do tanks play in modern warfare? We've got Mike Martin and Richard Barons to discuss. How much trouble is Joe Biden in? A paper trail of classified documents has been found in his home, breaching national security protocol. Classified documents are a constant theme in American politics, but other figures like Trump, Clinton and now Mike Pence facing the same scandal. Can Biden brush this off? Freddie Gray, our deputy editor, joins me now. The English language is facing a war on words. Groups are seeking to remove certain words that in this day and age are deemed offensive. Some on the list may surprise you. Lionel Shriver has the story. Finally, what are some of the dangers when it comes to restoring fine art? There have been some highs and lows of art restoration over centuries, but can the paintings ever truly go back to their original condition? And should they? I speak to Igor Taroni Lalique. Before we get going, thank you to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring this episode of The Week in 60 Minutes. Canaccord are experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. And don't forget to also subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. First up, Tory Slees is back at the top of the agenda for the Sunak government, but not because he wants it there. It's a worrying sign for the Prime Minister who, at the beginning of his premiership, promised the country he would move on from the Slees of the Johnson era. Can Sunak escape from the pile-up of Tory scandals? Joining me now is Isabel Hardman, Assistant Editor, and Political Scientist John Curtis. John, Isabel, thank you for joining Spectator TV this week. Isabel, it's been a real week for the return of Tory Slees. Um, how much of this is to do with Rishi Sunak and how much is to do with uh, legacy issues, as we might call them? I think it's interesting that there is really a sort of Rishi Sunak-shaped hole in a lot of this, in that it's obviously legacy issues regarding Boris Johnson and his fascinating personal finances. And then Nadim Zahawi, who was also uh, settling a, a historical tax bill, or historic in terms of its size, I think. Uh, and Rishi Sunak really is appearing, again, out of control, sort of not at the centre of all these events. He's said to be angry and not speaking to Nadim Zahawi because Zahawi apparently didn't give him the full details uh, of his tax uh, his tax affairs uh, from the outset. So he's been surprised by some of the newspaper coverage of the uh, route, which is definitely not where you want to be if you are Prime Minister. And again, at, at Prime Minister's questions this week, he didn't really seem like he had a grip on the situation. He was very much leaning on the importance of due process, which is important. But the fact that he was saying since then more information has come to light, it just seems as though he doesn't have the, the sufficient command over his party. John, at the end of the day, uh, we can go through these various scandals. And as Isabel points to, some of these are to do with Boris Johnson. Uh, Richard Sunak has obviously inherited quite a few. But to voters, are they going to be saying, well, this is this Tory, not that Tory? Or does it just look like a big problem for the Conservative Party? Well, of course, we are talking about a Conservative Party whose decline in the polls, at least initially, was instigated, I mean, not so much by allegations of sleaze as of uh, somebody, i.e. the Prime Minister, not following the rules that he, everybody else was required to meet and rules that were rather painful for people to meet. Now, to be honest, the tax affairs of a temporary Chancellor in a caretaker government, which is all Nadim Zahawi ever was, and a politician who is not that well known, isn't going to have the same kind of impact on the public that uh, the uh, allegations surrounding Boris Johnson did and to some degree still have. Um, that said, um, yep, um, uh, just over half of people by, uh, as polled by YouGov, um, Nadim Sahawi's company, where he made a lot of the money that's at stake, um, uh, said that he should resign and uh, only around 20% uh, took the opposite view. So public certainly think, seemingly seem to think Mr. Zahawi should go. I mean, so far as, you know, it doesn't have any immediate short-term impact. Well, we've only had one opinion poll so far conducted, really, since this uh, story broke. It's people polling for GB News. 
they already had the Conservatives down at 21%. They just simply have the Conservatives still down at 21%. And I think one just need to bear in mind here that the Conservatives are already so far behind the, in the polls that whether or not this particular story is going to add to uh, the Conservatives' difficulties as a party is perhaps uncertain. I think what is perhaps more interesting and, and following on from Isabel's comments is that perhaps this will be adding to voters' information about how competent and effective they think uh, Rishi Sunak is. They've been getting to have some of their doubts about that. And I think, you know, more broadly, I think Mr Sunak, it's long been obvious, is somebody who is very articulate um, when he's got things under control but doesn't always come across so well when he's under pressure, when he's, things are coming at him that he's not necessarily anticipating. And of course, for a prime minister, that latter quality is crucial. And perhaps Mr Sunak is gradually learning, much like Gordon Brown did, not similar, dissimilar character, um, that when you're in the top job, you've got to be able to deal with the things that uh, are the unexpected. And that's one of the things that voters, of course, expect you to be able to do. And ultimately, Isabel, um, the Tories could stay where they are in the polls. Um, I think some Tory MPs will always blame Rishi Sunak for that, but uh, lots did come before. He needs to lift his party up closer to where his approval ratings are, or at least where they were when he first entered number 10. And he said uh, on the steps of Downing Street, his government would be one of integrity, which I think lots of people thought was an, an end to some of the scandals. So is is it a problem for him if he, if he cannot, I suppose, move to... I suppose, making politics boring, which is something that they, they have been boasting about trying to do for some time, which this week isn't going so well. No, I, I think it, I mean, I think it is a problem that politics isn't boring, that he hasn't made his party suddenly seem slick and as though it's not going to you know, trip over its own shoelaces. I think a bigger problem will be if in the budget in March, there's not some kind of indication at the very least of tax cuts and of the, the tax burden going down. And Tory MPs aren't expecting a dramatic reduction, but they want a plan for tax cuts and a plan that will see them going into the election with a much lower tax burden. They at the moment aren't sure whether Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are really sincere in leading a Conservative government. They accept that they're sincere in leading a boring government, even if that doesn't seem to be happening uh, to them at the moment, but they really will kick off if there's not a, a direction of travel on the tax burden. This, this debate by Tory MPs about the budget in March really goes to the heart of the dilemma of the Conservative Party at the moment. It's, not, it, it's arguably part of the legacy of Rishi Sunak as Chancellor, but the problem that, that the angst that the Conservative Party has been dealing with, it was the angst that lay behind the leadership uh, 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 contests last summer, it's why Liz Truss won, is that the Conservative Party is struggling with the fact that is presiding over record levels of taxation and record levels of spending. Uh, now, arguably, that's nothing to do with it. It's a consequence of COVID, post-COVID, the supply chain difficulties, high inflation, and uh, now um, uh, the, the, the difficulties uh, within the public services. But the problem is that um, at the moment, the polling evidence suggests that the focus of the public is very much on the state of our public services because the, the, the real dilemma facing a government and the Labour Party would face the same dilemma if it goes into office is we have the UK has a fiscal crisis, you know, a, a fiscal crisis of the kind that we last experienced in the 1970s. But the public services, despite these high levels of spending, are not delivering. And it's therefore very, very difficult for any government of any colour to pursue much in the way of tax cuts uh, against that backdrop. The first thing the Conservatives have to be able to do, and again, it's not a question of passing legislation to ensure that the ambulance turns up on time when there's a strike. The problem the government has to solve is to make sure the ambulance turns up on time when people aren't on strike, because at the moment, minimum service guarantees that the government has in mind are not being met in ordinary time. And until the problems of the health service and the problems to some degree in education are resolved, it's going to be very, very difficult for any government to persuade voters that tax cuts are the priority as opposed to dealing with public service. But of course, for many conservative politicians, that is an uncomfortable place to be. But that unfortunately is the place in which the party finds itself. 
And Isabel, on that point, I mean, Rishi Sunak seems to grasp some of the problems that John just mentioned in the sense, if you look at those five priorities and yes, there are three which relate to the economy and what is growth, um, but that's not the same speed of a growth plan as the trust sites, for example, would want. Mm -hmm. And instead, there is a big focus on the NHS, on public services, and was talking about the issues. Uh, I mean, the, the complaint is it's more probably what a focus group would say on those five priorities, and, and but it does reflect this. Now, we have the growth group, which is um, you know, many uh, led by uh, former members of Liz Truss's cabinet. They're already agitating, as you point to, for tax cuts. But do you think there has been a period of reflection, which is that perhaps the next budget is not going to be where the tax cuts are? If there are going to be tax cuts, it's more likely to be one probably two away in terms of before the next election. I don't think within the party there's been that period of reflection. Certainly those who are very familiar with the, the broad spectrum of views across the party, they are expecting an indication of a direction of travel in the next budget. But it's very interesting that the trust group, even those who dismiss that group as, in the words of one MP who I was talking to yesterday, deranged, still say, but they do have a point about growth. Uh, and I think that's something that, that Sunak should take seriously and not just think these are, you know, not sore losers, but people who who don't know when to be quiet and have a period of reflection. Or idiots, as he uh, said, of people who, oh, to use the words of the Prime Minister. And that kind of thing goes down really badly with Conservative MPs. You don't have to be a political obsessive to know that the Tory party is a very sensitive beast. I mean, it, it basically has the same levels of emotional sen sensitivity as a 14-year-old at school disco. And I think when you call MPs idiots in any party and you're their leader, that's not a great idea. When you do it in the Tory party, it's just a, a surefire way of winding them up. Yeah, and of course, when he was saying idiots, it was it was more, oh, the public realised, well, we don't need tax cuts now. So it wasn't direct, but I think... Yeah, he didn't MPs, say my MPs are idiots. Yeah, they, that's what they heard. It didn't take much to, to join no. the dots and, and for them to feel that. Um, John, just finally, um, you mentioned how the public are still making up their minds on Rishi Sunak. Um, they may have made their minds up on the past few years of Tory government, um, but the polls are not looking particularly good for Rishi Sunak. Is there anything in terms of a positive you're seeing um, from as we you know hit his first three months as prime minister? Well, I mean, one of the questions we were asking about Rishi Sunak as he became prime minister is, would he be able to bring his party up to the kinds of levels of popularity that he personally enjoyed? Or would we find that eventually his personal popularity fell towards the kinds of levels that were closer to that of his party? Now, he is still much more popular than his party, but the gap is narrowed. And it's and so far as he is concerned, the gap is narrowed in the wrong way, i.e. his own personal popularity has declined. Most opinion polls now ask people whether they approve or disapprove of how he's doing his job. Do they think he's doing well or badly? Are they satisfied or dissatisfied? Now have Rishi Sunak in negative territory, whereas when he first became prime minister, he was in a, a positive territory. So he's he's been under gradual decline. And, you know, therefore his ability you know, both to, to handle the immediate political fire, but also in the end to deal with the problems of public services, the problem of the health service, to, re to try to deal with some of the industrial unrest that's uh, kicking around, where frankly... Uh, certainly, the industrial rest inside the health service. It is the it is the government that people blame, not the trade unions. Until you can start to deal with some of this and demonstrate leadership on those kinds of things, uh, then frankly, the risk is that he's going to get, end up being further in that direction. But on growth, by the way, look, look, this is not a source of political division. Every politician, I mean, the Labour Party has been constantly going on about the need for growth. Every politician realises that given we have a, a debt to GDP ratio of around 100 uh, percent, that we have uh, uh, taxes at record levels, spending at record levels of GDP, that the only way we're going to get out of this is by achieving economic growth. The argument is about how you best achieve economic growth. And it's probably going to be the central debate between our political parties between now and the general election. Thank you, John. Thank you, Isabel. As Russia looks to ramp up its armed forces, the case for sending inventory over to Ukraine has revealed the limitations to European tanks. Matt Galliotti looks at the West's hollowed armies in the magazine this week. To discuss, I'm joined now by Mike Martin and Richard Barrons. Richard, Mike, thank you for joining Spectator TV this week. To kick things off, Richard, can you explain what this debate about tanks has all been about? So at the heart of this is the Ukrainian government's uh, plea to have 300 main battle tanks and 500 large artillery guns to do two important things. One is 
to break up and stop the Russian offensive that they know will appear at some point early on in 2023. And the other is to have the land combat power to be able to shove the Russians out of Ukraine. And what that has provoked is a debate in the West about should Ukraine be given these tanks and if so, uh, what type and how many. And Mike, I wanted, could you just describe what role these tanks play in the war? Because um, I think at earlier stages in conflict, there have been demands for different, uh, you know, for certain weapons. Uh, why is it that tanks are now seen as the thing that the country really does need? I think Ukraine is uh, about to go on the offensive. I mean, that's what's going to happen uh, once the spring thaw has happened. And what tanks are really, really useful for is punching through defensive positions or front lines. And, and they're highly manoeuvrable and they take their firepower with them. So you can either go through Russian units or around them. And so you're right, we have gone from, you know, originally anti-tank missiles to air defense, to artillery, to now we're asking for tanks. And actually what's happened is that's tracked the stages of the war. Primarily at the beginning, Ukraine was on the defensive, but now they've retaken three key areas back off the Russians and they're ready to go onto the offensive. So they need the weaponry to allow them to do that. And Richard, why is it that Germany has really dragged its feet here? Because we now, um, you know, later this week, uh, finally uh, had Germany say that they will send tanks and also giving permission um, for others to send tanks that they have made. What specifically uh, is, it, is causing that delay and how long it's taken to get there? Well, there seem to be three main reasons. The, the, the first is a general German cultural resistance to getting involved in the business of war, given their uh, clear historical legacy and Roughly half the German population just doesn't like to do war, and we would understand why that is. Secondly, because Germany, despite all advice uh, from its allies, built quite a dependency on Russian energy and Russian trade. And there were legitimate concerns last year about how much damage supporting Ukraine would do to the German uh, economy and prosperity. And thirdly, and I think uh, more tellingly of late, a concern that if Germany... Uh, lent more weight to the Ukrainian military effort, this would give Russia the excuse that it was looking for to expand the war from a war between Russia and Ukraine to a war between uh, Russia and NATO. And indeed, Russia defines the war now as a war uh, with NATO, whatever we like to think. And Mike, do you think there is a real risk that actually the decision this week is about that Germany has now greenlit this? Um, obviously, other countries, the UK came out uh, before that to say they would send tanks. Um, is that going to lead to uh, you know, a toughening up in terms of the rhetoric and potentially an escalation of this war? Um, I think um, it's actually hard to argue that Russia can escalate this war. I mean, it's it's a it's already a genocidal war. We're finding mass graves in forests. Um, they could expand it to some other countries, but all of the neighbouring countries are covered by the NATO Article 5. So Putin would have to be completely mad to do that. I mean, the Ukrainians have held back the Russian army. What do we think the combined armies of NATO are going to do? And then the only other option really is the nuclear escalation. I know there's been a lot of chat about that, a lot of it from Russia talking about these unimaginable consequences. But actually... Uh, that's actually stopped. That that was a lot. There was a lot of that at the beginning of the conflict, and it became quite clear that the Russians were bluffing because they realised that the use of nuclear weapons in Europe, particularly when on the other side of the conflict are three other nuclear powers, Britain, France, and the US, basically would make Putin's position completely untenable. There's no way that that would be allowed to stand, and so the Russians have quietly dropped the nuclear posturing as well. So. Uh, there might be a, an upping of the rhetoric. I mean, frankly, who cares? Um, they can up the rhetoric as much as they like. If the Ukrainians have got a tank brigade, which is, you know, if you've got 120 to 150 tanks, that's a tank brigade. Now, that significantly upgrades their capability and, and will enable them to launch an offensive, you know, perhaps in the south of the country that cuts the Russian troops in Crimea off from the Russian troops in the Donbass. Like, this is really significant stuff. Uh, now, Ukraine have called for 300 tanks. Um, so, Richard, where are we at in terms of uh, the number that we expect them to roughly get to? And also, what is the number that would uh, potentially lead to uh, 
Ukraine making so such inroads that perhaps uh, people start to talk about this, you know, war reaching an end, or, or is that not actually uh, something that's on the horizon, no matter the number of tanks? So Ukraine has asked for 300 tanks. Uh, you know, that's the top end of their ask. So they would know they're unlikely to get 300, and they would know that whatever number they got on any given day, a number would be broken or uh, out of action. And as things stand, depending on the, the details that emerge in the coming days, they might get about 120 more up-to-date uh, Western tanks. Um, this will be complicated by the fact that there'll be of several different types. Each type needs its own logistic supply chain and its own fleet of maintainers. And it's going to take some time, frankly, to, to master that. But as Ukraine looks at uh, the, the numbers and the way the war is likely to go this year, the first thing it needs is is tanks and other things, including an awful lot of ammunition, to break up the prospect of a Russian offensive probably coming out of the Donbass at some point. And when Ukraine has to go on the offensive, you can't win the war just by defending. When Ukraine goes on the offensive to take its country back, it'll have to do it in sensible bite-sized chunks. And when it does that, it will want to have three to seven times as many tanks in principle to defeat uh, the defending Russian armor and other systems. So it, to concentrate enough force, it, it needs to acquire a number. And I think 120 of several different types is likely to mean that they, they fall short a bit. And falling short means this war remains pretty much deadlocked and more likely than not to run into 2024. And Mike, what do you think on, on that point then is a reasonable best case scenario for Ukraine in, in the coming months when it comes to that spring offensive? Um, so I think it's important to note that both sides are going to try and launch a spring offensive. I think a lot of commentators uh, argue that the Russians will have an offensive and the Ukrainians will have a counteroffensive. I think Ukraine has long had designs on a spring offensive as well. Um that really, those two offensives in different areas are going to dominate the spring and the summer, probably stretching into the autumn. For Ukraine, uh, the most obvious place, it doesn't mean that that's where they're going to do it, is to go south from Zaporizhia, cutting the Russian forces in two if they can get to the coast, the Sea of Azov. Um, the next most likely place is up in the northeast, because if they, if they cut across there, then they actually cut the Russian supply lines running down into Donbass. Um, the Russians, uh, on the other hand, are very, very keen to finish uh, filling out Luhansk and Donetsk, which are the two uh, provinces in the east of the country that make up the Donbass. And this is what Putin has claimed as his war aims. So it's quite interesting. Both sides are actually trying to make gains in different areas. Uh, you know, from the Ukrainian point of view, they're trying to defeat the Russian military. Uh, and from the Russian point of view, uh, they're trying to just fill in those two provinces in the east. And then, Richard, I suppose there's a question, which is uh, particularly one we've seen in the UK media this week of, well, if these countries send tanks, what is left in terms of their own supply? Um, and there's been lots of reports about how actually the UK military um, is pretty depleted as is. Um, so we're talking about, you know, NATO armies, but um, how match fit really are um, lots of these European countries in terms of their um, armies? So I think this is one of the most profoundly important political questions of, of, of our time. And, and it's the one that governments are least inclined to want to grapple with. The, the, the fact is that the UK armed forces and, and the armed forces of uh, most of our European neighbours are, are not, quote, match fit to play their part in the revitalisation of NATO, which NATO has constructed in a new strategic concept and a new set of plans and a new force model it's rolling out um, this year. And we should remember that we last reviewed our defences in 2021. We produced the integrated review. That, as a matter of policy, made the army smaller and decided to not recapitalise it from the, the fleet of stuff it has now, which was uh, issued in the 1990s, until uh, later this decade, it was actually is into the next decade. And then the war in Ukraine occurred. And we are now locked in this confrontation with Russia, which I think shows absolutely no signs of going away for at least half a generation. So, so the fact is, despite um, potholes, the, the, the challenge with education, the perils of NHS reform and all of that, um, we now have to revitalise our defence for the world we really live in. And, and that means matching what Germany has said it will do, France last week has said it will do, which is to, to lift defence spending 
now, not in a few years' time, in order to play our part in uh, greater European uh, security. If we don't do this, um, we'll be vulnerable, we'll lose our place of influence um, in NATO, and the bill will be greater when we eventually get there. So I uh, imagine there's a very stiff debate going on in Whitehall, but uh, my view will be our political leaders are failing us if they do not grasp the defence nettle now in this urgent moment of need. And yet we have a situation where Rishi Sunak has not repeated some of the pledges of his predecessor, Liz Truss, when it comes to defence spending. And partly because, as you say, so many pressures on public finances right now and the, co the cost of living crisis. So I suppose, Mike, just thinking ahead to the, the future of warfare, as we just heard from Richard, there was, there was a pivot in recent years to talk more about modern warfare, um, about um, you know, smaller armies, uh, how lots of wars be fought in lots of different ways. But do you think the Ukraine war has been a reminder that actually we do need to have big supplies when it comes to the traditional mean, uh, means of combat. What's happened over the last year in the conversation over UK defence happens regularly to all countries uh, when they're talking about defence. <clears throat> New technologies come along and everyone decides that actually they, they can do the same but they're cheaper so we can get rid of some of the old capabilities, usually armour, infantry it costs a lot to you know pay all these people to sit and do nothing and then when we come to war we realize that actually to win wars you need infantry and if you have infantry then you need tanks and artillery and all the other suite of land capabilities so it's not enough to have the latest technology of course you do need that we do need to be able to operate in the cyber domain we do need satellites etc um, but unfortunately they are they are an addition they are not a replacement to the, the 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 you know at the triad of delivering effects on land is is infantry tanks and artillery and i'm afraid that you cannot do away with these if you want to be a serious war fighting country so more tanks all round thank you mike thank you richard biden's docu saga shows no sign of stopping now mike pence has also been caught with classified files at his home which american politician hasn't become a national security threat Freddie Gray, our deputy editor, joins me now. Freddie, thank you for joining Spectator TV this week. Great pleasure, Katie. Um, you've written the politics column um, and you're talking about the Biden files. Tell us more. Well, uh, this story has, has been rumbling away. Uh, it, the documents were first found um, in Joe Biden's home in November. Uh, November the 2nd, six days before the midterms elections. But the story only came out, funnily enough, in January that uh, these sensitive documents, uh, that uh, classified documents, uh, had been uncovered in Biden's, one of Biden's offices. And then there's been more uh, files. They're sort of sprouting up like mushrooms all over Joe Biden's properties. Some in his Wilmington home in his garage, where he parks his precious Corvette. Uh, some in his personal library. And Biden says there's no there there. He says this is a sort of minor story, a sort of accidental filing error that everybody's making too big a fuss about. The problem for him is it's very embarrassing because there was this story about Donald Trump in the summer and his files at Mar-a-Lago, uh, which the FBI raided his home. And Biden went on TV and said, uh, how could anyone be that irresponsible? And so he's got egg on his face. It's pretty embarrassing. And the drama of the story might be yet to come because what it might point towards is the office in which those first files were first found uh, is at the Penn Biden Center. And there's some, lots of questions about how the Penn Biden Center was funded. Joe Biden was paid an enormous amount of money um, by the University of Pennsylvania, the Penn in Penn Biden. Um, and the whispers in Washington is that there's a bigger scandal there. So could this get quite serious for Joe Biden? Um, you mentioned Donald Trump and obviously investigation there. And at the time, lots of people were saying this could rule out um, a return for him. Um, in terms of uh, Joe Biden and his current position, but also whether he you know, goes for that next term, could this have an impact? I think it could. Uh, I think he's very keen to say it's a nothing burger at the moment. But very interestingly, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, who was really thought to be the real president, he was the guy who drove everything within the administration, he quit this week. And what I've heard is that he quit because he, knew, he knows that there's going to be more on this story uh, and it's not going to be pretty. And he's sort of getting out while the going's good because it had been going quite well for Joe Biden. I mean, the midterms were not a disaster as they've been expected to be. It looked like the economy was turning around. 
And they came into the new year, everybody expecting Joe Biden would announce for 2024. Um, but suddenly there's a bit of doubt creeping in. If you remember, I put it in a covered piece a couple of weeks ago, uh, that Joe Biden had gone off to uh, San Croix in the Caribbean for a holiday. And he was thought there to be talking to his family about uh, the big decision, whether he will run in 2024, because there was obviously quite a lot of concern about his health, uh, a lot of talk about whether his mental faculties are quite up to it. And the speculation was that because he was feeling buoyed by the midterms, he was feeling confident about where America was going, how his presidency was going, he was actually going to announce quite soon that he would... And so he would put the question to bed as to whether uh, he he's going to stand in 2024. Suddenly now, with this story, all sorts of doubt is creeping in. And there's a lot of conspiracy theorising, particularly on the right of American politics, that actually the Democrats have always wanted to get rid of, or senior Democrats have always wanted to get rid of Joe Biden. And that, and maybe Ron Klain is, the theory would be Ron Klain was sort of aware that this is all coming. Um, Joe Biden's ratings have gone up uh, since the summer, but they are now going down again um, as the sort of gloom uh, around the economy in this sort of post-COVID age sinks in. The, what people are saying about Ron Klain is that he realised that they've actually had a pretty good run, um, certainly since the the last few months of uh, the first two years of Biden's presidency, and that now may be a very good time to get out. So the the talk that Biden is going to resign is suddenly back in Washington, whereas at the turn of the year um, it had sort of it started to go away, and and the fight to watch out for in the coming days will be uh, the debt ceiling. Because Joe Biden fancies himself as a, as a tough negotiator. He thinks he's very good at bipartisanship, reaching across the aisle, working with the Republicans. But the new slim majority in the House of Representatives are determined to make uh, this debt ceiling, which is a sort of perennial uh, story in Washington. And it sounds very boring, and it is quite boring, because it's just about getting the government to agree to take on more debt in order to fulfil its, ob- its obligations. That could become, uh, it could go much closer to the wire than it ever has before. And that could throw the whole economy into turmoil and then cause more trouble for Biden. The fear, uh, there was a very good piece by Ramesh Panunru in the Washington Post about the scariest part about this debt ceiling crisis is that Washington isn't scared. Both sides are confident, the Republicans and Joe Biden are confident and the Democrats are confident that they can engage in brinkmanship and sort of push it right to the edge. The worry for Americans and the American economy is that they push it right over the edge. And is there any role here in terms of uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden? Because often we've seen stories in the past about how um, Hunter Biden's emails, you know, um, the the hardware that was, was found. So, um, you know, you've had some attack lines saying, well, uh, this person could actually uh, be someone who is vulnerable to being a security, uh, some people would target. Could that make things worse for Joe Biden? It could. I mean, first of all, it's quite funny uh, that father and son both have this habit of leaving possibly very dangerous stuff just lying around. Um, Secondly, the Hunter Biden story has been what the right-wing media in America have been banging on about for ages. And most establishment pro-democratic media has said, you know, this is just a sort of almost fake news. It's not a real story. They have had to slowly accept that there is a big story there, which is that Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, when he was vice president, was clearly shilling off the president the extent to which Biden was aware of what, Biden, what his son was doing, the extent to which there's this famous email which talks about the big guy getting 10%, is the big guy, 10% of a very lucrative deal, is the big guy Joe Biden, nobody quite knows. Uh, I think the drama around the Penn office, the, the Penn-Biden office, could lead on to more questions being asked about what, what were those business dealings in the sort of years 2015 to 2019? What was Joe Biden doing? Because he did make a lot of money in that period. Uh, and was it all kosher? That, that'll be the question. And just finally, you mentioned how there's been a reluctance in some parts to accept this as a, a story and actually as time has gone, it's had to be taken more seriously. Do you think um, in that case, when we're talking about classified information, that Donald Trump and Joe Biden have been treated differently? Oh, undoubtedly, yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, Biden's supporters will say it's a different type of story. 
Uh, Trump seemed to be hoarding the documents. Uh, he'd been asked to hand them over. He didn't, so the FBI raided him, whereas Biden has cooperated fully uh, with, 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 with the authorities, the National Archives and the FBI throughout. That, that's true to a certain extent. But the seriousness with which Democrats talked about the importance of classified documents as though you know, there's nothing worse in the world than compromising national security by being slack or sloppy with national documents compared to the way they talk about it now, which is this, oh, this is nothing, you know, it'll go away. I mean, I think the real story actually is that there's far too many of these classified documents. Americans love classifying everything. It makes them feel sort of important. Uh, and uh, they just, you know, Mike Pence, the former vice president, some documents turned up in his house uh, this week, or it was revealed that they turned up this week. And he, he, you know, he's another person who's now got egg on his face. So I think the problem really is that there's all these documents lying around everywhere. It's just how seriously people take them. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you for joining this week. Great pleasure, Katie. What are some of the most offensive words in the English language? Mate, fieldwork, guru? These are some of the latest to go on the banned list by groups who deem them harmful. How much further can they go? I'm joined now by economist Lionel Shriver, who wrote about this in the magazine this week. Lionel, thank you for coming on Spectator TV. Uh, this week in your column, you talk about the words we're not supposed to say. And we're going to roll through a couple, but let's begin how you begin in your piece. Housekeeping. What's the problem? It doesn't qualify as any of the ist words, you know, racist, sexist, ageist, etc. Um but according to this university department in Washington, it feels gendered. Um, gendered in a way which is unfair to women. That's right, because I suppose it's something that women used to do. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of other things we, we might start eliminating. <laughs> Childbirth. <laughs> I've got a list. Um, if we start banning housekeeping, how does that actually manifest itself at this university? The other words that we're supposed to be using? Or... That one didn't come with a substitute, but um, th- there are often in these banning documents that are now being issued um, in great quantity, unsurprisingly, coming out of universities primarily. Um, and they often tell you what you're supposed to say instead. And unfailingly, the substitutes are awkward, um, really bad English, sometimes even ungrammatical, uh, wordy, and um, and don't mean the same thing at all. And as you point to, a lot of this is coming from universities. Um, is it because people are complaining or ultimately these are academics looking ahead and saying this, this, these words should not be used? Well, at a glance, it seems as if these people need to get a life. Right. Um, but this is this this obsession with language and, and therefore uh, imposing virtue by fiat from above uh, by means of controlling the words that people are allowed to use. This has been uh, an obsession of the left for decades now. And we've all been through the what I call the euphemism churn of constantly being told that whatever you said last week and however you called a certain group last week, you can't do it this week. And we used to talk about the disabled all the time. And that was supposed to be the polite term because we were told we couldn't say handicapped anymore. Um, And now you can't even say disabled because all of these words that mean a person have been demonized because that's reducing a, a, a human being to a single trait. So now you have to say um, people living with disabilities. This, you see what I mean? I mean, the, the clumsiness and the wordiness, this typical, and this doesn't seem to bother these people um, because they're terrible writers. And uh, I theorize in the column that maybe this is part of a scheme to just make sure that they don't have any competition. We're, we're all terrible writers now. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, the word disabled, but reading your column, I discovered apparently American is also something which could be offensive. That's correct. We're not supposed to talk about Americans anymore. The problem is that uh, both the both the North and South continents of America include many, many different countries, and 
Americans have co-opted the term to, to relate only to them, and that's not fair, so they can, shouldn't be able to use that word anymore. So I suppose the term offense is uh, getting quite broader use these days. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think offense? Uh, do you think there is such a thing as an offensive word? Like how, how should we define what an offensive word is? I presume that you're not going to put American in that bracket. Um, I find the expression birthing people offensive. Okay, so I am capable of being offended and I won't use it. And as a matter of fact, I find almost all of this leftist jargon offensive. It offends me that it isn't imposed on me. Its ugliness offends, offends me. Um, it's a relentless and remorseless repetition offends me. Bad writing offends me. And lack of thinking offends me. Because behind a lot of these terms, it's using language as a substitute for thinking for yourself. Are we seeing much sign of it seeping, I suppose, into the mainstream yet? Because on reading your column, I found it fascinating that some of these words that I've been using breezily, and we'll get to one which is, I think is part of my podcast name, Woman with Balls, you say mm-hmm. ballsy, um, is, is one that is, is not supposed to be used. Um, but is there a sense that this is still mainly in academic circles, or are we seeing it seep through? The trouble with this stuff is it does tend to spread. We've plenty of evidence of that. There was almost an a, there was almost a particular day in a particular year when suddenly we stopped talking about minorities. I say we, we loosely. I, I'm I, I'm alluding mostly to the media. You couldn't say minorities anymore. You had to say people of color, and it was just is it, it was as if someone had passed a law. It was so universal and it was so instantaneous. But I find the expression stilted. It's, it's, it's an arcane construction. It's absurd. And what makes it especially absurd is that if you say colored people, you'll lose your job. In fact, people have lost their job for saying colored people by accident. But what's the difference? I suppose if a group, uh, which is the group that it's referring to, is really offended by that, mm-hmm. do you think that is reason enough that people should, do, you know, perhaps just as a matter of basic courtesy, start using other terms? Or is that that then it becomes a bit of a slippery slope? Yeah, you anticipated my answer. Up to a point, yes. And uh, although I seem to offend people all the time, I don't generally do it on purpose. Uh, so up to a point... I will comply and use uh, whatever term is acceptable and seems respectful. And um, but there's there's kind of a limit because, and especially in relation to the dis- disabled, there there have been so many different words we're supposed to use. And you're not going to push me to use an expression to the point of clumsiness and it, 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 that would mar the quality of my prose. I am not going to talk about people living with disabilities or people living with obesity. Um, that's, that's ridiculous and accomplishes nothing, right? I don't see why that's more respectful. It's just bad English. So what is the best way to fight back? Because I was, and, and then my final question was, A, the fight back, but uh, B, um, you mentioned birthing, but are there any words that you're going to ban for your use and response? I don't think the answer is to fight back by banning. After all, that's the problem. I reject outright the idea that people have the right to tell me which words in the English language I may and may not use. Um, so the first way you fight back is by ignoring it, right? So go ahead and use whatever words pop into your head. If they express what you wanted to say, then use them. Uh, And the other way to fight back is by making fun of them. And I find that with uh, the progressive left, that's the one thing they can't take. Um, They don't mind it if you call them names and get angry um, and, and seem mean. And they don't even mind it when you fight back with the same kind of tactics that they use, like, oh, we're going to ban all this language. But they hate to be laughed at. 
And now on a slightly different topic while we have you here, I think a few months ago when I was presenting Spectator TV, you came on and you talked about another of your columns, which is about heating. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's one of our most viewed clips of all time on Spectator TV. Um, So people can guess what the zeitgeist is, but but we found it for them. Um, It's pretty cold at the moment. Are you still sticking to your not putting the heating on policy unless absolute emergency? Yes. Um, when I left, uh, our house was 10 degrees. And, um, and this is long underwear. I won't show you, but I'm wearing um, long underwear underneath. Uh, I walk around in a coat. Um, I get used to it, but I type in gloves. <laughs> and it's a little absurd. But... Uh, I think I pointed out in our discussion on this topic last time is that I view turning on the heat as defeat. Yeah, and your bills are looking good. Well, they're twice as much as they were a year ago, but everyone's is. It's still smaller figures there as yeah. a result. And um, thank you, Lionel, for appearing on Spectator TV. Always a pleasure. And finally, for the magazine, Frank Lawton interviewed the former chief restorer at the Vatican, Maurizio De Luca, to learn about the unenviable task of repairing million-pound pieces of fine art. What happens when it goes wrong? And is a little something lost in the process? Sometimes a lot. I'm now joined by our arts editor, Igor Taroni Lalique, to discuss. So Igor, thank you for coming on Spectator TV. Um, in the magazine this week, we have an interview with Maurizio De Luca, which lifts the lid on the hot debate when it comes to art restoration. Yes. Um, so it, this was triggered really by um, a really terrible restoration at the National Gallery. It's a Piero della Francesca nativity that's had um, two shepherds in the background and they've been retouched and restored um, in such a way that the Guardian called it, kind of compared it to the, to the monkey Christ, the famous monkey Christ um, from northern Spain, where those old ladies um, completely messed up this uh, fresco. Can you please talk us through the good, the bad and the ugly when it comes to art restoration? The two massive Michelangelo's that he he's focuses on in this book, and um, some of those, um, to me, to my eyes, strike me as kind of a bit outlandish and reduces the subtlety and and um, the expression, the, the ambiguity of the originals. There's these horses in the convert, the, uh, this horse in the conversion of Saul. You have this like lovely kind of expression on the horse's head in, in the original and it's completely gone. Um, you have um, this complete, like, I, I find this baffling and he doesn't really justify it in the book, but he, he completely changes the entire layout and look of Damascus in the background from what looks like an oriental city to something that is um, a pastiche of a Roman city, which may, may be justified by the academic evidence, but looks just hopeless. Um, and then there's also this kind of very cartoonish um, uh, update, um, ch- changing the features of this woman in the crucifixion, um, where you know she's sort of in fright, but actually the, in the original, the look could be many things. It's more ambiguous. Whereas in the updating, it's definitely she is frightened. It's much more like a, I don't know, like a, a, a moment in a film. And then I suppose you were showing me a couple before we started recording and asked me which one I thought was a restoration. And I'm a little bit too scared to say it in front of you because um, I'm worried that I will be shown to have no artistic taste whatsoever. <laughs> but um, is there such a thing as, you know, uh, a, a work of art that can ever truly be restored? Or do you think every time there is a restoration, it will just lose something? Definitely. You're, you're, you're essentially recreating the work. You're, you're creating a, a 20th century version of that work. And there is something to be said in, 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 in favor of this. To some extent, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're making it clear that actually these Renaissance works were probably far more vulgarly crisp and far more cartoonish than we imagine. The, 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 the process of time has made them really tasteful, disheveled, subtle, you know, all the things that we really kind of respect. But actually, a bit like Greek statues, which are really like disgustingly coloured in like very bright, 
quite gaudy colors, which I think would shock us if we did it. If we painted all those white statues that, that we know and love suddenly in these gaudy colors, I think we'd be pretty outraged. Um, but to some extent, that brings us closer to how they would have seen it. On the other hand, there's a sort of, there's a lack of modesty in just saying that you're, you're essentially vandalizing this work. Often the people who do the most vandalism in, throughout society are those who think they know. Uh, those who think they know the, the mind and have the talent of Michelangelo. Right. Um, so I suppose just finally on that, what do you think uh, would happen? You know, some of these original artists were here today. Do you think that they would be potentially horrified that the work was being restored? Or, would, or uh, do you think perhaps they would think, well, at least more people get to see it? I think, I think they probably would be horrified because the, the sort of academic instinct is a modern one, is, is, is really a sort of creation of the Enlightenment. The idea that these are there in perpetuity in a certain way that we, we ossify them is, um, is something kind of, it's much part of modernity and I think these artists would have would have felt an affinity, a close affinity to someone like, I mean, the Chapman brothers are famous for essentially buying up a whole series of Goya etchings and totally vandalizing them. I mean, original Goya etchings. Um, and I think to some extent, I mean, I don't really rate them, um, not because they're vandalism. I think you can do good vandalism and bad vandalism. Um, but the, because at least there's a sort of honesty to the fact that they're recreating something. They, they're creating something anew. And so if De Luca was saying, look, I'm just, I think I'm better than Michelangelo, then I would have more respect. Yeah, but it's the sort of, say just say it. Maybe, maybe it is. I mean, may, you know, I mean, to some extent, that is the sort of arrogance of a lot of these restorers. Um, so I, I don't think someone like Michelangelo would have respected that at all. Um, thank you, Igor. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Once again, thanks to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring the week in 60 minutes. Canaccord will provide you with the expertise you need to help you build your wealth with confidence. Visit candowealth.com for more information. And don't forget to also subscribe to The Spectator's YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of the video and tap the bell icon so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week.